the best advice I can give, especially if your LSAT's coming up very soon, is really to just do everything in the same exact way that you've been doing it when you were studying. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 7th Stage LSAT podcast. My name is Henry Ewing, and I'm joined with my co-host, Asta Sinha. And today we are also joined by another member of the 7th Stage team. I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, my name is uh, Christopher Wynn, and I am the live class manager for 7th Stage. Christopher. I've only ever heard you oh, introduce Chris. yourself as okay. Chris. So formal. Yeah, I do All go right. by Chris. <laughs> How do you get that nickname? Oh, you know. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Chris is not only our live class manager, but is also a long-term tutor here at Seven Sage. All three of us actually are long-term tutors here at Seven Sage. Yeah, do I count Aside as a long-term from, tutor now? I think, I'd, I'd say I think so. you've earned that right. I think yeah. so. Oh, wow. I feel like hours-wise, you've tutored and you know done live classes for tons and tons of students. Combined, I think we all have at least a couple hundred students under our belt. I think that's a fair estimate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Easily. definitely. Yeah. And because of that, we wanted to come together and do an episode today on the most common mistakes that we saw from our students. And maybe some of those mistakes resonate with y'all, some things that you've been seeing in your own studying journey, and talking about different ways as tutors that we kind of approached resolving some of those issues. Henry, I wanted to kind of start off with you. What's one of the most common things that you would see with your, with your students when you were working with them? Yeah, I mean, of course... Uh, none of my students leave with any issues, but they certainly come in with a lot. And one of the things that, or I find that people have the most difficulty with uh, is translations. Mm. Uh, Translating uh, statements into conditionals tends to be very difficult. And it's one of those things where I I usually, I get kind of excited when someone has a translation difficulty because it means that a lot of the work they have, uh, they're they're almost Mm -hmm. there. Right, they have all of the pieces of the puzzles. Their 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 logic, like their actual reasoning, is good, uh, but their ability to translate sentences uh, has some left to be desired. You could say, and one of the reasons why it's so important to get translations right is it doesn't matter how good you are with logic. It doesn't matter how good you are uh, at reasoning. If you are not assessing the problem correctly, you will not get the problem right. It would be like the same as you could be an expert at division, but if instead of dividing eight by four, you think that the the page says you're dividing eight by three, you're never you're not going to get the answer right. It's true though, right? That's that's essentially what you're doing. Fair enough. If you look at this test as a math problem, uh, the translations are how you actually determine like what are you supposed to add, what are you supposed to divide, what are you supposed to multiply. Uh, So translations tend to be a a large issue, and I know we we went over that last. Uh, like, you know, a couple of months ago, some tr- common translations. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the issues that I, I always run into is, is terms like can't, unless, not mm. unless. Or if I, I say, you know, no people who run are happy. Uh, how would you translate that into a it's conditional? Tricky. Still is a little tricky to, to kind of work around those. I mean, Chris, what about you? Do you find that your students tend to have a similar issue? Do you see that a lot when you're tutoring? No, yeah, I, I, I do think they do, especially with the word unless. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. it's just unless the only, um, even even the word only, I think, is just extremely unintuitive to be able to translate, which is why I, I do recommend most times for students to just immediately translate in their head to a, a simple if-then statement before doing anything else. 
um, so that mm-hmm. they can, you know, simplify the language for themselves so that they're not trying to do two things at once, three, four, five things at once, kind of flow through the question um, kind of seamlessly, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah no, that, that, that makes <clears throat> a ton of sense. One of the things, uh, how do you get them to that if-then statement? Uh, usually what I have people go back to is, is a pocket phrase. Right? Like, like, what's a pocket phrase that you can use, uh, a not-unless statement uh, that makes a lot of sense to you? When I was studying myself, the one was like, I don't run unless it's from the cops. Because like, at the time, I, I know it's a little bit ridiculous. But like, if I told you I don't run, yeah, are you ever going to see me running? If I just stay, say I don't run? Probably not. No, right. You would never see me running. Uh, but then I say, well, actually, I was lying before. I don't run unless it's from the cops. And so if I round the corner and you see me in an all-out sprint, <laughs> what would you then know? The cops are behind you. Right. So if I'm running, then it's from the cops. And so having that pocket phrase uh, it can make a lot of sense. Lately, what I've been telling my, my clients to do is, is to have something that's a little bit more, I don't know, intuitive and in real life. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can't vote unless you're a U.S. citizen. Or, or you can't be the president unless you're 35. I see what you're uh, saying. And so if, if you have trouble translating that, you, maybe you'll go like, oh, so if you're 35, then you'll be the president. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? There's plenty of 35-year-olds who are, who are not mm-hmm. presidents. Uh, and so you would have to go the other way around there. So if you're a president, then you're 35. That makes sense. And that sense. can help people uh, translate uh, these conditionals. Uh, use a real-life example. Uh, the other one for, for, for like, no, right? No people who run are happy. Uh, what I always go for is, is no dogs or cats. Right? So if you're a dog, what are you not? A cat. Right. So you, you take away the no and you apply it to the cat. So if dog, then cat. So no people who run are happy. So if you run, what are you not? Happy. Happy. Yeah, exactly. I, I recommend all of my, my clients and, and people I work with to, to build those pocket phrases, like find phrases that work for you that you can quickly uh, translate yourself. And that way, when you have a not unless statement, uh, I don't go to the store unless I'm out of milk, uh, you, would, you would say, well, what is the, you can't be the president unless you're 35. What's the president mm-hmm. situation there? Oh, going to the store is the equivalent of president. So if I go to the store, then what? Oh, then I need to buy milk. Things like that. Uh, does that make sense? No, yeah. And um, essentially, essentially what you're doing for your students then is just almost kind of giving them like a learning anchor so that they can just refer back to something and build um, mm-hmm. build that habit with that specific phrase over and over yeah. and over again until they can finally, um, you know, apply it to a LR stimulus or a logic game section seamlessly. Yeah. Totally yeah. agree. Uh, one of those things where it, it takes some work, uh, but you want to get to a point where you, you just look at a statement and then you can... You just immediately know right, yeah. what, what the translation is. And, and the way you do that is just through a lot of practice. So it's kind of like going back down to fundamentals. Like sometimes even just drilling translations yeah. is a really good way to improve your LR score. I don't know about you. But none of the arguments on this test are actually that difficult, but they're dressed up in a way that they become very conf- uh, mm. confusing. But if you were to diagram, if I was to diagram every single conditional reasoning argument for someone, and stick uh, and stick that in front of them instead of the stimulus. Yeah, I think a lot a lot more people would would get it yeah. right, right once they have some idea about conditional reasoning. Um, uh, of course, then uh, it's just more of an indication that you need to practice translations. Right. No. Yeah. And and I, I joke about this a lot. What I'll tell um, 
someone who kind of maybe asks what I do is, oh, I, I teach I teach adults how to read. I joke about that a lot, but really there's there's a lot of merit to that, um, mm. um, especially with all of the dressed up language with the LSAT. I, I really am, um, you know, teaching good active reading skills, um, telling students how to like how and where to kind of stop and pause, especially when you're given a really, really long sentence. Mm-hmm. You can't just read all the way to the end. You have to you have to make sure that you're processing the information that you're you're being given. And, you know, practicing tips and tricks for reading is is another another big one that I think um, a lot of students struggle with. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The other thing that I wanted to talk about altogether, one of the most common things that I would see when I was tutoring were students coming to me and saying, I can get it down to two answer choices. But once I do, I have no idea what to do. And I always pick the wrong one. I don't know if that's common for you guys, but I feel like you know, at least 50% of the time that I talk to a student who's struggling with the test and they're, you know, relatively high scores, maybe like high 50s, low 60s, they're just like, I I get down to two and then I don't know what to do. What do you guys typically tell your students if they come to you with that kind of an issue? I sat in on one of your classes, Chris, and I remember you were were working with a student where two of the answer choices looked very similar. Yeah. And we were having a we were having a whole debate about which one or it wasn't me, but I was just I was, you know, in the corner observing. And there it was a large debate about which one they looked very similar. So don't they do the same thing? And I think you brought up a good point where it's like you know one of them is right. Right. So what you want to do is you want to look at the differences between those two answer choices. Like I, how what how are these two different? And because if you start you know that they aren't exactly the same. And exactly. So if, you, if you look at how they're, they're different, that can help clue you in on like, oh, wait a minute. One of these is putting what I want to be in the sufficient condition in the necessary condition. Right. One hundred percent. The student I think I was working with at that time um, was was kind of um, expressing their. Their um, what's the word like discontent or frustration with with these two answer choices. Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately, um, she was she was kind of saying like. They they both they both look correct, right? But ult- ultimately, they're, they're, the LSAT's never going to give you two correct answer choices on this yeah. test. Um, there will always be one correct answer, no matter what, right? Um, so in that instance, it's it's your job right then and there to kind of um, reassess those two answer choices and see what the heck is different. Because if you think they say the same thing. Um, and you think they're both correct. That just ultimately cannot happen. You're missing something. Right? Yeah. yeah. Understanding how to take the next step, which is, okay, I made a mistake and I need to figure out what that mistake is, um, is exactly what you should do in that situation. Which, But again, under time, when the pressure's on, if you're not practicing that and if you're not actually trying to implement that, it can be very, very hard to do it on game day. Yeah, yeah. You know, you never rise to the occasion. You you sink to the lowest levels of your training. Oh my God! What is it with you and your dramatic battle <laughs> analogies every episode? It's true. Though. It's true. I mean, b- building off of that, an- another issue that I'll come across a lot is students thinking that they're like too good to do untimed sections at the point where they're at. You know, or like. Um, oh no, you're telling me to go back and revisit the core curriculum. I've already done that, right? But like even. Uh, to, to what Henry was saying, like even experts practice the beginning fundamentals of any skill that they practice. So mm. um, that's that's something that I I will always make sure to remind my students when they're when they're feeling like mm-hmm. that. I totally agree. Yeah. The only thing I yeah. wanted to add to 
to that point something i tell my students a lot is really being careful about the language that they're using surrounding the answer choices that they're assessing because what i would find happen a lot during tutoring sessions was i'd be working with a question working with the student on a question they would look at an answer choice and they're like i'm pretty sure that's wrong i think that one's right that one i don't know i'm kind of iffy even though i know that they know that answer choice is wrong or that answer choice is right they know that definitively but they are so cautious in the language that they're using and they're adding so much uncertainty that when they get to a question that they're actually confused about they can't differentiate it between the ones that they're just insecure about right Mm -hmm. and if we can Mm -hmm. eliminate uncertainty from your language where there doesn't need to be uncertainty right if it's a one-star lr question you see the right answer you don't need to second guess yourself right you know it don't take time away Mm -hmm. from the questions that you actually should be second guessing yourself and so something i would always encourage my students to do anytime i saw them using uncertain language when describing an answer choice or describing a question that was within the level of a type of question that they should be able to get right i'd nip that in the butt right cut it out just tell me definitively yes or no what do you think about this answer choice because the more definitive you can be and the more confident you can be in the questions you know the better you'll be able to assess any certainty you actually have down the road so that was just the other piece of advice that i wanted to throw in there yeah and and honestly the the more definitive you are um especially uh when you're when you're taking a time test um the more it can i think actually help you when you're when you're under review mm-hmm. and you're doing blind review, um, because when you when you're super confident that you got a question correct, um, but it it ends up being that you you got the question wrong, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. that's a that's a huge place where you can um, go back and make sure to re- review that error that you made that you were so yeah. confident about, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, because because really, I mean, just bouncing off that. It, there are decisively right answers and there are decisively wrong answers. There's no in between. It, it's very rare. I, I can think of like maybe one or two offhand right now where there's a weakening question where like one is just better than the other, but it, they both weaken to some yeah. degree. And it's it's right? usually like from from practice test one. Yeah. Like yeah. 17 yeah. 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 Or yeah. Things like that. Um, definitely. um very 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 rare if even in the in the modern pts that that's the case yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i think that also gets at another thing that i, t- I tell people when, when studying is that getting better at this test is all about you right it's about how can what are what do you what problems do you yourself have uh, and just going off of that idea but what I notice people do is they'll review the right answer, and it's like, oh, they'll they'll check the answer. Of course, the right answer is C, and I picked it wrong. And on this test, generally speaking, after you're fairly fluent in LSAT, LSAT broken brainness, <laughs> once you know that an answer choice is right, it becomes incredibly obvious why that answer choice is right. Generally speaking. Uh, but it's not good enough then to just say, okay, I see why that's right and why that's wrong. Well, you have to go back and be inward and say, like, why did I pick this wrong mm-hmm. answer? Right? What about me skipped over the right answer? What about me picked a wrong answer? And I think that that, that decisiveness and in, in being, uh, being very uh, – uh, what was the word you used? I forget what the word – not decisive. Um, confident? Certain? My God. My, my brain. Yeah, confident, yeah. right? Uh, be, if you're forcing yourself to say something, I confidently believe this is correct. I confidently believe that this is wrong. It's going to help bring out uh, your own, I hate saying the word deficiencies, <laughs> but places where you can grow. 
Right. right. Areas where you can grow, and it'll make it a lot more apparent. Whereas yeah. if you're just wishy-washy, you just be like, oh, well, I don't really know. And also, too, stop lying to yourself. <laughs> you like an answer better than the other one. I, come on. Like, it is very rare. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't no, know I'm with you. Like, I've I was spent... studying, it, was, it was always like, I'd like uh, I, I know it's tough, but I definitely like this answer choice. But then I, I would, you know, I'd waver. I'd be like, oh, you know. I guess it could. I, I think it's this. But on the inside, like, oh, no, it's definitely this. Even if it's wrong. I'm totally with you. But I, I, you don't want to embarrass yourself. I've spent so many hours in tutoring just working that habit, that very specific habit out of students, that language of uncertainty. Any one of my former students could tell you, like, I've spent so much time being so obnoxious about it. Like, as soon as the word, eh, or I don't know, or maybe, or kind of, leaves their mouth, it's over, right? Like, we're going to stop what we're doing and we're mm-hmm. going to address it so that... We can nip that issue in the bud and then move on to the things that are actually, you know, worth your time, things that we actually need to improve on. Uncertainty, insecurity, indecisiveness, whatever that is, has no place on this test, in my opinion. Henry and I have both talked about things that we saw a lot with our students. Chris, is there anything that comes to mind for you? You've worked with, I think, more students than either of us have. Um, Any main issues or complaints that you would see with clients? Yeah, I think probably... One of the most important ones would be students not being able to diagnose their own issues, kind of kind of like what what Henry was saying previously. Um, issue diagnosis, I think, is pretty hard when you're by yourself and, and you're 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 studying by yourself. Um, but at the same time, I think it is one of the most important things to do when you're studying for the LSAT. Yeah. Um, if you're not aware of what exactly you're struggling with, it's going to be very, very hard to study, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've found with many of my students that that ultimately they just don't know sometimes what they don't know. And um, mm-hmm. being able to, I think, combat that and and because I, I think the first step out of anything is is awareness um, yeah. Being able to be aware of your mistakes really is is the the first step in improving on your LSAT studies. That's also why I highly recommend students to um, to wrong answer journal mm-hmm. because that really helps with mm-hmm. that issue diagnosis. And sometimes I even uh, add to that like a a hard grammar journal to to write down those grammatical sentences that a student um, struggles with or like a hard conditional logic journal or something like that. So you can write down those and or statements or those um, those sentences with unless so that you have a record of what you you're specifically struggling with that you can always go back and Mm -hmm. refer to and review until you no longer struggle with it anymore. I've actually not heard a a diary of shame. Oh, my God. (laughs) A diary, Um. a diary of improvement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay yeah, yeah that's a good reframe two right? different sides of the shoulder um but chris can you expand a little bit more on that journal i have actually haven't heard of that yeah before. essentially more about how that works um honestly i would i would take anything that that you're struggling with and and put it put it in there so that you can you can go back to it and and re- refresh your memory um because also the, the thing about the lsat is the lsat's very good at making the LSAT consistently hard in a way that like allows a student to maybe have improved on um, one PT 
right, and like learned all the ins and outs of one PT, yet still score the same yeah. exact score on the next PT, right? Yeah, true. Um, that is so, true. So what this wrong answer journal helps you do is, is culminate all of these issues that happen throughout these PTs so that hopefully not, maybe not the third PT that you take, but the 10th PT, you'll start seeing improvement mm-hmm. because you're looking back at all of these issues from from all of those nine PTs that you've taken in the past um, to finally get those answers, get that question that would have tripped you up um, on PT number four, that's no longer going to trip you up on PT number 10. Um, yeah. So, so, so really um, working on, uh, again, kind of like that issue diagnosis, I think is, I think is extremely important um, not just for not if not just if you're considering tutoring, but like um, if you're studying by yourself as well. I think it's even more important to to work yeah. on issue diagnosis. I don't think people yeah. take it seriously enough. Absolutely, I mean, I think it's something that we talk about a lot. Maybe not that exact point, but something Henry and I have talked about a lot on the podcast is making sure that every time you go to take a PT, you're trying to improve on something specific. Mm-hmm. Like you're not just taking the PT to take it, but you've got something that you've been drilling, something you've been working on, something you've been reviewing, and you're hoping to see yeah. that change reflected on the next PT that you take. And I think both of those versions of a wrong answer journal or even just a tough sentence journal mm-hmm. uh, really play on that, right? What you're yeah. trying to improve. And, and all, all, of yeah. these, all of these tips and tricks that we're giving y'all um, really culminate into um, how can you be a good active studier on for this test you know mm-hmm. um active yeah. studying versus passive studying like passive studying is you know what what you might be doing in the core curriculum just watching jy's videos right but active studying is actually taking notes you know actually mm-hmm. trying to reflect back on what you just learned and reflect back and, and ask yourself what might be a little bit difficult from what i just learned that i should probably revisit back in in the future right um and mm-hmm. although that can take a long time and also be uncomfortable because um, you're kind of facing your insecurities at that moment, it allows for the best kind of growth when you're studying for the LSAT. Yeah. I totally agree. Everyone wants to march into the city, but no one wants to sit in the trenches. <laughs> How many of these do you have? Do you just wake up every morning and rehearse? <laughs> I, I just made that. I just like, yeah. Uh, I, but I love that you're talking about active studying because active studying in passive studying does not necessarily mean like one is harder than the other. You're still t- right? going to be uh, taking very, the same amount of time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still taking yeah. the same amount of time. It, well, it, it's fact, kind of like you would probably take more you, time you, passive studying. Yes. Well, you could take 20 PTs yeah. in a row and, and just, just do them straight and keep doing them. And, and that, I mean, we'd have a debate on whether that's studying, <laughs> but if you take one PT a day for 20 days in a row, like that's good. There a lot of time. That's very hard, and it's not very mm-hmm. efficient. Yeah, right. It's it's not active studying because you're you're not taking the time to address like what what am I messing up? What can I fix? If you just are doing problems straight, it's difficult. And sure, it's like you're doing something, but are you doing something effective? Mm-hmm. Are you are you converting your your minutes into points? That's what you want to do. You want to convert. Time is a resource. Oh my god! <laughs> and you want to convert as many minutes into points. It, but but uh, being serious, and so you want to make sure that every minute you're you're working, it's towards some yeah. goal, right? So if you're, if you're taking a section, and, you, and ideally you're working on one mm-hmm. goal too, that's totally fine. And, and give yourself permission to mess up on other oh, yeah. things 
if it means you're working 100%. towards one thing. So it's like if your goal is ti- if your goal is timing, it's like yeah, take a section, try on the section, yeah. but just keep working on the timing instead. And if you mess up five questions, fine. You weren't trying to get the questions exactly. right. You're working on and, timing. And, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I will always tell tell students like when we first start working on timing to expect a, a score drop because yeah. Um, sometimes especially when um you're trying out something new you got to give yourself that leeway to you know experiment um and sometimes that means a score drop to ultimately get an even better score in the future yeah i would see that a lot especially when i was working one-on-one with students i'd introduce a new strategy or a new skill whatever it is and then the next pt their score would dip a little bit and there would be a whole meltdown. Yeah. And I'd be like, stick yeah. with me and here. Even when Just I stay with me for my a students minute. for it, there is still a meltdown. <laughs> right? But then three weeks later, their score has skyrocketed, right? Exactly. Instead of going minus 15 right. on RC, they're minus five now. And it's like, ah, you were right, Asta. Yeah. Right? It's just one of those things that takes patience. And I think that's another reason Henry and I emphasize so much on this podcast, giving yourself enough time to study for this test. It was pretty much the whole point of our last episode on retakes. Uh, so you give yourself the opportunity to try out these things, try out different strategies and really maximize your potential. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Chris, do you have any kind of closing notes, anything that you'd want to tell our listeners uh, that you've gathered about the LSAT, kind of your best advice? I think the the best advice I can give, especially if your LSAT's coming up very soon, is is really to just do everything in the same exact way that you've been doing it when you were, when you were studying. Um Unfortunately, I I hear a lot from my students who didn't do this um, because either one, they were nervous or some things were were happening um, out of their control. Unfortunately, always score lower, you know, Mm. because if you try to change something right before you take a test, inevitably, it's not going to go well. You know, like a coach isn't going to tell a basketball player to to start, you know, doing something totally innovative right on game day. Right. So make sure you're doing everything the same way that you practiced it. That's good advice. It's better to 100% execute a slightly flawed plan (laughs) than to, than to not execute or incorrectly execute a perfect plan. It's true though. It really really is true. It's like like you would much rather do something that you know you're good at, even if it's like maybe quote unquote less optimal than to try something new and just fail miserably. Yeah, you're at really it. good at these sayings, Henry. <laughs> You've been on a roll today. Oh. <laughs> this, is just, this is just like this is just like yeah. I feel like in college, my my one of my friends Zach, he would he just had a bunch of these that he would just kind of start making up, and then you just say something kind of it almost sounds right, but it's not. Really well, shout out, right. shout out to Zach. Shout out Zach. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Shout out Zach. Yeah, exactly. Goodness. As Zach would say, this is where men become boys and boys become wolves. Interesting. Well, on that note, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> on yeah, that exactly. note, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today and imparting your wisdom to our listeners. Uh, you guys, hope you guys enjoyed this episode, learned a couple of new things, tried a different approach after listening to last week's episode too, and have a great rest of your week. Happy studying, y'all.